in school. Get your money every Friday. Happy endings are the rule. So divide up those in darkness from the ones who walk in light. Light them up, boys. There's your picture. Drop the shadows out of sight. This is Jennifer Stone with Stone's Throw. Today... Today is December the 11th, 2007. The winter solstice looms over us. Uh, I wonder, are you feeling holy these days? <laughs> yes. I, I myself personally have had enough Christian fairy tales, enough to last several lifetimes. Religiosity always makes me nervous. Of course, it's all about context, you know. I don't mind a little Dickensian Victorian sentimentality. Uh, I don't mind the rebirth stuff. All of that is warm and hopeful and uh, full of um, toys, teddy bears, um, babies in mangers, holy families. I'm one of those who um, used to put on a passion play every year um, the best one was in the fifth grade, I remember. It was my best costume. I, of course, always played the Virgin Mary. I used to take my father's bathrobes for the shepherds. Uh, it was the theater, you see, actually, the theater that was my religion. Anything that required costumes. <laughs> it's a British tradition. Actually, uh, think of it. Think of all of the British actors we know. Um, I was thinking of Laurence Olivier the other day, reading something about him. His father was an Episcopal minister, clergy of some kind. The um, King James Bible and Shakespeare, they all, you know, fit into that um, period in the wonderful 16th century, 16th and 17th, um, those narratives are, what is it, uh, they're like the ancient Greek and Roman narratives, tales of kings and power and life and death, the human predicament. Uh, today's religiosity is not so much fun, actually, not much fun indeed. I believe, unless my hearing's going, I do believe I heard Oprah Winfrey say, this is a quote, he is the one. Yep. I never thought I'd hear her go over the top like that. He is the one. I must write her a postcard to remind her that the Messiah isn't running for public office. Um, Barack Obama is a nice young man. He's 46 years old. Uh, anyway, Maya Angelou has endorsed Hillary Clinton, so... I suppose things will work themselves out. Uh, Oprah's speech, when she endorsed Barack Obama, 
was definitely worthy of the great orators one thinks of MLK. What I thought of was her roles in the theater. She is, above all things, an actor. Her television role is that of great mother, the goddess. Ofra is a major talent. Uh, you remember the color purple? She played Sophia. Very interesting character. Uh, especially the scenes after she'd been in jail, you know, and they let her out and she came home for Christmas. Um, a remarkable acting job. And as the mother of Bigger Thomas in Native Son, you remember Richard Wright's book, Native Son, made a movie of that one, and her role as the mother of Bigger Thomas, she looked, let's let's just say it, she looked quite ugly. Um, can't imagine Oprah looking that way. In Toni Morrison's Beloved, she played Setha, the, uh, the ultimate mother figure, the slave woman who uh, would rather see her children dead than in slavery. I watched that movie so many times now, it scares me. Uh, anyway, um, when a great actor takes the stage for political purposes, uh, we need to pause and ask ourselves, what happens when poetry meets politics? Think of Laurence Olivier in World War II, never mind. The season is getting through to me. I didn't think it would this year, but it is. Uh, I was, um, unfortunately, too rheumatic, too ill to get to the holiday crafts fair this year. That was a shame. Uh, never mind. Uh, rheumatism is worse than communism. Maybe it's all these overwhelming events we're experiencing, this roar of war, the... Wargasm in the Middle East. Uh, and then, isn't it strange how the, the violence echoes everywhere? All these shootings and all this blood and myth in the wake of our ship of state. Yes, the ship of state plows across the world. Waves of war washing the shores of every land. Anyway, you know how it is, Al Gore wins the peace prize, but the peacemakers can't seem to get their hands on any political power. All these curious contradictions. Uh, what is given with the left hand is then taken away by the right hand. We do not let the right hand know what the left hand is doing, etc., etc. It's a clever way to run a repressive regime, isn't it? Everywhere I hear people saying that... Uh, the people, the people, you and me, uh, we are the wise ones. We are the good Germans. Uh, it is our leaders, our leaders who are acting like tyrants. We've been led astray. Uh-huh. Anyway. <laughs> anyway, perhaps it doesn't bear too much thinking about. This year, the journey to Jerusalem is certainly one of sorrow, yes. Oh, what was it? Christ said, yes. Um, Weep not for me, but for yourselves and for your children. For if these things be done in the green tree, 
what shall be done in the dry. Yes, indeed. Um, warnings everywhere. I found the words of the child of our time. I reached up on my bookshelf and I found the child, uh, the one struggling to be born. She has been crucified. Her name is Rachel Corey. She was crucified in 2003. Uh, there's a play. It's made up of her journals. I have it here in my hand. It's edited by Alan Rickman and Catherine Viner, V-I-N-E-R. Now, Alan Rickman, you would all recognize. Uh, he's a British actor that everyone knows and recognizes, but perhaps... Uh, He's not a household name. He was in most of the Jane Austen movies. You remember Sense and Sensibility. And he's now been in the popular Harry Potter movies. Uh, he's one of those very familiar uh, faces. The little play comes from the royal court. And he helped edit this. Um, what is it? It's excerpts taken from the writings of Rachel Corey. The title is, My Name is Rachel Corey. For me, she's the stand-in for the Christ child this year. On March 16th, 2003, she was killed by a bulldozer as she tried to defend the home of Palestinians in Gaza. I think that her voice is the one I hear over all the Christmas cheer. Crucifixions, you know, come in many sizes, shapes, and styles. I think it would be interesting to read a little bit of this text. My name is Rachel Corey. comes from the Royal Court. And I wish uh, maybe we can get copies of these for the next um, the next subscription, next marathon for fundraising. The Royal Court Theater presents the writings of Rachel Corey. It is produced with the kind permission of Rachel Corey's family. Uh, the productions were in April and October of 2005. And I think what I'll start with is <laughs> where she tries to start. Yes, she says, Picking up the books, touching the pictures, the question is always where to start the story. That's the first question, trying to find a beginning, trying to impose order on the great, psychotic, fast-forward merry-go-round. Trying to impose order is the first step toward ending up <laughs> in a park somewhere painted blue, yeah, singing row, row, row your boat to an audience of saggy-lipped junkies and business people munching oat bran muffins. <sighs> but that's how the story ends, good buddy. So if you are concerned with the logic and the sequence of things and the crescendo of suspense up to a good shocker of an ending, you had best be getting back to your video game and your amassing wealth. Leave the meaningless details to the poets and the photographers. And they are all Meaningless details, my friend. Okay, 
Rachel finds a journal and turns the pages. 1991 My name is Rachel Corey. I am 12 years old. I was born on April 10th, 1979 in Olympia, Washington, to my mother and father, Craig and Cindy Corey, a brother, Chris, a sister, Sarah, and a really old cat named Phoebe. I grew. I learned to spell cat, to read little books. When I was five, I discovered boys, which made my life a little more difficult, just just a little, and a lot more interesting. In second grade, there were classroom rules hanging from the ceiling. The only one I can remember now seems like it would be a good rule for life. Everyone must feel safe. Safe to be themselves. Physically safe. Safe to say what they think. Just safe. That's the best rule I can think of. Now I'm in middle school. I guess I've grown up a little. It's all relative anyway. Nine years is as long as 40 years, depending on how long you've lived. I stole that from my dad. Sometimes I think my dad is the wisest person in the world. (laughs) You understand, none of this is really true because what I wrote today is true. But you'll read it by tomorrow or the next day and my whole life will be different. Is that how life is? A new draft for every day. A new view for each hour. Yes, footnote here, that reminds me, I believe diary means lasting one day. The truth of today (laughs) is the, what is it, the lie of tomorrow, the hypocrisy. Never mind. Uh, Let us jump, let us jump all the way to Jerusalem and see Let's see what happened to, uh, let's see what happened to Rachel. I have been in Palestine for two weeks and one hour now, and I still have very few words to describe what I see. I don't know if many of the children here have ever existed without tank shell holes in their walls. I think even the smallest of these children understand that life is not like this everywhere. They love to get me to practice my limited Arabic. Today, I tried to learn to say, Bush is a tool, but I don't think it translated quite right. Anyway, there are eight-year-olds here more aware of the workings of the global power structure than I was just a few years ago, at least regarding Israel. Nothing. Nothing could have prepared me for the reality of the situation here. You just can't imagine it unless you see it. And even then, your experience is not at all the reality. What with the difficulties the Israeli army would face if they shot an unarmed U.S. uh, civilian, a citizen, yes. uh, The fact that I have money to buy water. When the army destroys wells, 
Yes. And of course, the fact that I have the option of leaving. And I am allowed to see the ocean. If I feel outrage at entering briefly into the world in which these children exist, I wonder, how would it be? How would it be for them to arrive in my world? Once you have seen the ocean and lived in a silent place where water is taken for granted and not stolen in the night by bulldozers, spent an evening when you didn't wonder if the walls of your home might suddenly fall inward, are surrounded by towers, tanks, and now a giant metal wall. I wonder if you can forgive the world for all the years spent existing, just existing, in resistance to the constant attempt to erase you from your home. That is something I wonder about these children. I wonder what would happen if they really knew. I am in Rafa, a city of 140,000 people, 60% of whom are refugees, many twice or three times over. Currently, the Israeli army is building a 12-meter-high wall between Rafa and the border. 602 homes have been completely bulldozed, and the number partially destroyed is greater. Today, as I walked on top of the rubble, Egyptian soldiers called to me from the other side of the border. Go, go, they called, because a tank was coming, and then waving, and... What's your name? Something disturbing about their friendly curiosity. To some degree, we are all kids, curious about other kids. Egyptian kids shouting at strange women wandering into the path of tanks. Palestinian kids shot from the tanks when they peek out from behind walls to see what's going on. International kids standing in front of tanks with banners. Israeli kids in the tanks, occasionally shouting, occasionally waving. Many forced to be here and many just aggressive, anonymously shooting into the houses as we wander away. In addition to tanks, there are more IDF towers than I can count, some just army green metal, others these strange spiral staircases draped in some kind of netting. A new one went up the other day in the time it took us to do the laundry. Nowhere are we invulnerable to Apache helicopters or the cameras of invisible drones that we hear buzzing over the city hours at a time. We've been wavering between five and six of us internationals. There are requests for constant nighttime presence at a well on the outskirts of Rafa since the two largest wells were destroyed last week. But after about 10 p.m., it's difficult to move because the Israeli army treats anyone in the streets as resistance and shoots at them. So, clearly, we are too few. Ah, uh, many analogies 
are made about the continuing suffering of the Palestinian people and the upcoming occupation of Iraq by the United States, not the war itself, but the certain aftermath of the war. People here watch the media. They told me again today that there have been large protests in the United States, that there are problems for the government in the U.K. So now I don't feel like a complete Pollyanna when I tell people that not everyone in the United States supports the policies of our government. I'm just beginning to learn from what I expect to be a very intense tutelage in the ability of people to organize against all odds and to resist against all odds. I'm reading to you from a little play called My Name is Rachel Corey. It's edited by Alan Rickman and Catherine Vinner, V-I-N-E-R. It's taken from the writings and journals of Rachel Corey, the um, child, the martyr who died in in 2005. Ah, yes, when she was struck by a bulldozer in Gaza. Yes, she writes, I knew a few years ago what the unbearable lightness was before I read the book. She means the unbearable lightness of being, yes. The lightness, she writes, between life and death. There are no dimensions at all. There are no rulers, no mile markers. It's just a shrug. It's the difference between Hitler and my mother. The difference between Whitney Houston and a Russian mother watching her son fall through the sidewalk and boil to death. There are no rules. There is no fairness. There are no guarantees. No warranties on anything. It's all just a shrug. It's the difference between ecstasy and misery. It's just a shrug. And with that enormous shrug there, the shrug between being and not being, how could I be a poet? How could I believe in a truth? And I knew back then that the shrug would happen at the end of my life. I knew And I thought, so who cares? If my whole life is going to amount to one shrug and a shake of the head, who cares if it comes in 80 years or at 8 p.m.? Who cares? Now I know who cares. I know if I die at 11.15 p.m. or in 97 years, I know. And I know it's me. That's my job. Yes, once again, I'm reading to you from the journals of Rachel Corey, this year's Christ Child. (laughs) This is a wonderful little play I was thinking 
Mm, how we need a young woman to read this. Uh, I think I have time to read you part of a letter to her mother. It's towards the end. Um, I won't read you the description of the way in which she she was killed by the bulldozer. You know all about that. Uh, there's an eyewitness account by Tom Dale. She was killed on March 16th, 2003. That's the date. My mind is going, yes. 2003. <laughs> Four years ago. So long. Anyway, here's her letter to her mother. Mom, she writes, I have bad nightmares about tanks and bulldozers outside our house. And you and me inside. Sometimes... The adrenaline acts as an anesthetic for weeks, and then at night it just hits me again. It's just a little bit of reality of the situation. I am really scared for the people here. Yesterday, I watched a father lead his two tiny children, holding his hand out into the sight of tanks. I saw a sniper tower and bulldozers, because, well, he thought his house was going to be exploded. It was our mistake in translation that made him think this. Although, well, I'm sure it's only a matter of time. In fact, the Israeli army was in the process of detonating an explosive in the ground nearby. This is in the area where Sunday about 150 men were rounded up outside the settlement with gunfire over their heads while tanks and bulldozers destroyed 25 greenhouses, the livelihoods of 300 people. To think that this man felt it was less of a risk to walk out in view of the tanks with his kids than to stay in his house. I was really scared that they were all going to be shot. I tried to stand between them and the tank. This happens every day. But this father walking with his two little kids, just looking very sad. He happened to get my attention more at this particular moment, probably because I felt like it was our translation problems that made him leave. I thought a lot about what you said about Palestinian violence not helping the situation. 60,000 people from Rafa worked in Israel two years ago. Now only 600 can go there for jobs. Of these 600, many have moved because the three checkpoints make a 40-minute drive into a 12-hour journey. It's impossible, impassable. What can they do? The sources of economic growth all completely destroyed. The airport is uh, demolished, totally closed. The border for trade with Egypt uh, is closed now. A sniper tower in the middle of the crossing. Access to the ocean is completely cut off for the last two years. There used to be a middle class here. We get reports that in the past, Gazan flower shipments to Europe were delayed for Oh, two weeks for security inspections. You can imagine the value of two-week-old cut flowers so that that market dried up. And then the bulldozers come and take out the vegetable farms and gardens, what is left for the people. 
Tell me if you can think of anything. I can't. I love you. I love Dad. I'm so sorry for this diatribe. When I come back from Palestine, I probably will have nightmares and constantly feel guilty for not being here. I'll channel that into more work. Coming here is one of the better things that I've ever done. This is Jennifer Stone. I've been reading to you from the journals of Rachel Corey. (laughs) I wish I had time to read you the whole thing. It's a little play which was produced in 2005. Uh, Rachel died in 2003. It's called My Name is Rachel Corey. And uh, maybe I'll have time to read it next Tuesday before Christmas. Uh, Rachel is the girl who died um, when a bulldozer struck her down as she was trying to protect Palestinians. I'll be back on the air Thursday morning at 8.20 till then go easy. If you can't go easy, go as easy as you can. You are listening to 94.1 KPFA. La Peña presents its New Year's Eve dance benefit with Jesus Diaz and the Cuban Connection. Dance for a good cause to the hot rhythms of Cuban music with Jesus Diaz and the Cuban Connection. Monday, December 31st at 9.30 p.m. at La Peña, a non-profit wheelchair accessible center at 3105 Chatuk Avenue in Berkeley. For more information, visit lapena.org or call 510-849-2568. This is Free Speech Radio News for Tuesday, December 11th, 2007. From Eugene, Oregon, I'm Jess Burns. In today's program, Democrats say they won't spend more on war if they can't spend more at home. Climate negotiations in Bali hinge on who's responsible for taking action. And Bolivia has a new constitution that gives more political power to indigenous populations. All this and more, but first, these news headlines. I'm Shannon Young with today's headlines. Algeria's interior minister has blamed a North African wing of al-Qaeda for twin car bombs, which killed over 60 people today in Algiers and left more than 175 injured. One of the bombs exploded next to a bus carrying law students near the country's Supreme Court. The other bomb detonated in front of a building housing the offices of two United Nations agencies. Today's blasts were the deadliest attacks in Algeria since a 1997 massacre campaign at the height of the country's brutal civil war. The Israeli army launched a new ground offensive into Gaza today as part of its so-called attrition operations against the Gaza Strip. Rami Amigari has more. Medical sources report that today's encouraging killed six Palestinians and injured 19 others. A number of the wounded had to undergo surgery to amputate limbs. Dr. Kamal Musa of the Gaza European Hospital describes the injuries. 
The emergency room at the Gazi European Hospital received three dismembered corpses. Some of them have burns with no clear features, others were completely torn apart. Witnesses say that a column of Israeli tanks rolled a few kilometers into Rafah city and that the tanks cut off the Salah al-Din main road while Israeli soldiers took positions on the rooftops of houses. Palestinian President Mahmoud Abbas condemned the attack, demanding an immediate halt of Israeli army actions across the Hamas-run coastal region. A Hamas government spokesperson called on the West Bank-based government to suspend contacts with Israel, criticizing last month's Annapolis Peace Conference. Palestinian media reports the Israeli army has killed 40 Palestinians since the U.S. hosted Annapolis summit in late November. The majority of the dead were residents of Gaza. For free speech radio news and IMEMC.org, this is Rami Al-Mirari in Gaza. Climate scientists have found that Greenland's ice sheet is melting away at a pace never before seen. Arctic expert Conrad Steffen told a meeting of the American Geophysical Union that data shows Greenland's melt rate has increased by 30 percent since the first satellite measurements were taken in 1979. The accumulation of greenhouse gases in the Earth's atmosphere has caused a seven-degree rise in air temperature in the region since 1991. Steffen estimates that the amount of ice lost by Greenland over the past year is equivalent to twice the amount of ice in the Alps or enough to cover the area of Washington, D.C. in water half a mile deep. Ecuador's Minister of Oil and Mining has threatened to open up a national reserve to oil drilling unless the international community donates $350 million a year for the next decade to pay the country to keep the oil in the ground. In a televised statement yesterday, Ecuadorian oil minister Galo Chiriboga said bidding will open on June 16th if donors cannot provide an economic alternative to drilling. The Yasuni National Park is recognized by the United Nations as a biodiversity hotspot. Oil fields within the park hold an estimated 1 billion barrels of crude. Ecuador first presented the donate or drill ultimatum about six months ago, but only yesterday set a deadline. Pete Boat with the environmental organization Oil Watch says that while the announcement may be a threat, it falls short of blackmail. Countries in the North, Europe, North America, are using much more energy and are emitting much more greenhouse gases than countries in the South. So we have a duty to do something about it. And saving this park is a very concrete and effective way of doing something about climate change. It shouldn't be considered as blackmail. It's just a cheap way to, to solve a world problem because the amount of, of uh, carbon dioxide, which will not be emitted if we don't exploit this oil field, is about um, 400 million tons of um, carbon dioxide. If you compare that to the money which the government is asking, it's actually a a cheap way of of, um, capturing carbon dioxide. Earlier this year, grassroots activists succeeded in keeping billions of dollars in loan guarantees for the nuclear industry, sponsored by New Mexico Senator Pete Domenici, out of the Senate's version of the energy bill. Now Domenici is trying to put $25 billion into the 2008 Appropriations Bill to fund new nuclear power plants. Melinda Tuhus reports. The House of Representatives passed a new version of the energy bill last week, still without the loan guarantees for nuclear power, but the bill stalled in the Senate. 
Meanwhile, the appropriations bill that includes energy funding is working its way through Congress. Michael Marriott, executive director of the Nuclear Information and Resource Service, says if the funding is approved, nuclear utilities can apply to the Department of Energy for a loan guarantee. If approved by the Department of Energy, the utilities can then go to Wall Street and say, well, look, the taxpayers are basically co-signing 80% of the money we need to build this plant. So will you lend us the money we need to build this plant? Because none of the utilities you know, have the money on their own to build a plant. Marriott says dozens of groups are uniting to oppose the funding, and individuals are calling their members of Congress with the same message. Melinda Tuhus, Free Speech Radio News. And those are the headlines. I'm Shannon Young. The U.S. Congress is once again sharply divided over Iraq war spending. The Republicans have made a counteroffer that goes far beyond the Democrats' proposal. They've upped the ante $20 billion to $70 billion to fight the wars in Afghanistan and Iraq. All this money is tied to overall government spending for domestic programs, but does not include the domestic spending increases being sought by Democrats. Tanya Snyder reports from Washington. Funding for the war on terror is at a standstill in Washington. The two issues at stake, $11 billion in domestic spending and funding for the wars in Iraq and Afghanistan. All this to be included in a massive government spending package. The Bush administration and congressional Republicans have raised the bar. They are demanding $70 billion for the war without giving the Democrats the $11 billion more they've asked for for domestic spending. Republican Congressman John Boehner. You know, somebody has to decide the size of the pie. Uh, and we're in agreement with the president that the size of the pie for disc discretionary domestic spending is $933 billion. Uh, and, and so uh, there's just really no reason uh, for us to move away from that number. That is the number. Uh, and to try to blackmail the president uh, for some $11 billion in extra spending uh, on the backs of the troops and the veterans, I think is not sustainable on their part. The $70 billion demanded by Republicans is the latest proposal for compromise. This amount goes far above the Democrats' proposal. The Democrats have proposed to give no money to Iraq and some to Afghanistan, but at a maximum $50 billion. Senator John Kyle, Republican of Arizona, calls this a compromise. That represents only about 40% of what they really need. And you would think that people who are committed to the success of our troops would want to at least provide them some temporary relief so that they can fight over the holiday seasons doing what we've sent them to do. Appropriations Committee Chair David Obey, frustrated with the Republicans' unwillingness to budge, withdrew the proposed compromise. Senate Democrat Charles Schumer echoed Obie's frustration. Well, again, we're trying to work something out with the administration. They're making it very, very difficult. They have an attitude their way or the highway. Chairman Obie said he doesn't want any more money to go toward Iraq this year. Progressive groups are split in their response to this stalemate. When we spoke to Tim Carpenter of the Progressive Democrats of America, he said he was celebrating Chairman Obie's tough stance. Excited in that last night we heard that uh, House Appropriations Chair uh, Representative Olby is not going to bring forward any funding uh, that would include Iraq in it. So we're, at this point in time, all hands on deck, and we're hopeful that will remain the case. Tom Andrews of the Win Without War Coalition had a different perspective. Uh, the Democrats have announced that they're already ready to concede on the issue of war 
spending for Iraq. So before there's even uh, a debate uh, or a legislative battle, uh, the Democrats have essentially uh, thrown in the towel. Senate Majority Leader Harry Reid left room for negotiation on war funding. The, the one issue that is very clear, we have to complete spending. I have said a number of times I do not favor a continuing resolution, so I'm going to do everything I can to stop the government from being shut down, fund the government through the next year. And whatever is there dealing with war fighting and government, uh, congressional uh, priorities, we'll, uh, we'll take those up. The Department of Defense has announced that in the next few days they will begin sending letters informing military commands of the possibility of layoffs of civilian personnel in the event that no legislation is passed that appropriates more money to the wars. For Free Speech Radio News, I'm Tanya Snyder. The U.S. energy bill is effectively stalled in the Senate. Tax provisions and a 15% renewable energy standard for utilities are being hotly disputed. Demonstrators have been in D.C. for months now, pushing for strong climate change prevention measures to be included. Protester Ted Glick is on day 99 of a fast, saying he won't end the demonstration until the energy bill is passed. My hunger for action on global warming is much stronger than my hunger for food. It's just that simple. The Republicans have to get it. The Republicans have to identify with their own rank and file. A a Zogby poll showed that 77% of Republicans support having utilities increase the amount of the energy that they get from renewable energy sources. 77% of Republicans. And here it is, the Republican leadership in Congress that refuses to follow what their own base wants. Some leading Democrats say a compromise could be worked out by the end of the day today and the bill could come to the Senate floor again by Thursday. Disagreements are also plaguing the U.N. climate negotiations in Bali, Indonesia. Differences in opinion over which nations should take responsibility for tackling climate change are slowing down progress. The EU and developing countries want industrialized nations to start talks on a further set of emissions targets. But this is being resisted by a number of developed nations led by Canada and the United States. Rebecca Hinchke reports from Bali. Over 100 activists lie on the beaches of Bali, spelling out the words act now with their bodies. Phil Anianis is one of the demonstrators. Because right now there's a lot of talk and not a lot of action, and we want them to act now because the urgency of this problem demands it, and the scale of the problem demands it. Inside the conference, the head of Indonesia's delegation, Elim Salim, agrees. He expresses the frustration many developing countries are feeling about a lack of action from wealthy nations. Australia says they are offering $200 million for adaptation costs, but where is that money? It's just talk. There is no will to sit down at the negotiating table and say, here is what I propose, and this is how much it will cost, and when it will be done. They keep talking in the future. They are not offering real solutions. The Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change has recommended that industrialized countries cut their emissions by 25 to 40 percent by 2020 in order to avoid a climate catastrophe. But Ivo de Borg, UNFCCC Executive Secretary, has admitted that these targets have little chance of making it into the final agreement. 
The US-led negotiator Harland Watson said that such admission cuts are totally unrealistic for many countries. The US team is saying that they'll come up with their own plan in 2008 and that caps as a starting point for negotiations are out of the question. With Canada and Japan also opposing cuts on their admissions, any language related to them is unlikely to make the final draft of the roadmap. Olden Merver, the union director of the Strategic and Policy for the Union of Concerned Scientists, says we're moving backwards from Kyoto. This is not the direction we need to be going in. The science is clear. There's an old saying that if you don't know where you're headed, any road will get you there. And unfortunately, that seems to be what the United States, uh, Japan, Canada, and others are thinking, that we don't need an ambitious goal uh, to steer these negotiations over the next two years and keep us within the safe range where we can avoid the worst impacts of climate change. The stakes are too high for this kind of political game, make, game playing. We have to bring home a deal here that addresses mitigation, addresses adaptation, responds to the urgency of the science, and communicates to the people of the world that countries are getting serious about solving this problem. The final Bali roadmap is expected to be a vague, broad mandate for two years of negotiation on an agreement to succeed the Kyoto Protocol when it expires in 2012. U.S. opposition has partly been predicted on the argument that major developing countries, as well as the industrialized world, should accept binding targets for inducing admissions. The argument has been freshly made in Bali by Canada. A set of Canadian principles leaked to environmental groups states that developed countries should be required to take action more quickly, but major industrialised developing countries should also have binding targets. That major developing economies such as China, India and Brazil argue that their per capita emissions are a long way below Western levels and that taking on targets would slow their economic growth. Marcelo Furtado, a Greenpeace campaigner for Brazil, says the first world must show leadership. They are eroding the confidence that has been built in two years of dialogue here. And by eroding that confidence, by saying let's not put these targets on the AWG, let's not have these targets on the dialogue, what they're doing is moving us backward from where we were two years ago and maybe showing their true colors that at the end of the day they really don't care about what's going on in the planet. He says on every issue from technology transfer to mitigation, it is developing countries that are leading the way. <laughs> Indonesian farmers and fishermen protest outside the conference. They're here to tell the delegates that they, the poor, are already suffering the effects of global warming. We don't just want talk, we need help. Otherwise, our lives will be over says Hendry Sagani, the general co-coordinator of the international farmers movement. But there is growing pessimism that talk will be all the Bali conference produces. For Free Speech Radio News, this is Rebecca Henschke in Bali. Pakistani President Pervez Musharraf says his emergency decree will be lifted at the end of the week and major opposition parties are deciding to forego a boycott and participate in the country's national elections scheduled for January. The political landscape of Pakistan seems to be stabilizing, but many within the country have argued that meaningful elections cannot be conducted while some opposition candidates are still under house arrest. Those who have spoken out against the government are threatened with arrest, and media restrictions have yet to be lifted. From Lahore, Amber Vora reports.
There is a widespread concern among Pakistan opposition parties that January elections for the national and provincial assemblies will be rigged in favor of President Pervez Musharraf's PMLQ party. Because Musharraf appointed the election commission and the judiciary has recently been packed with his appointees, they are unlikely to intervene. Initially, both major opposition parties, the Pakistan People's Party led by Benazir Bhutto and Nawaz Sharif PMLN party, stated that they would boycott the elections, which would have stripped them of legitimacy in the eyes of the international community. However, the People's Party recently decided to participate in the polls, and just two days ago, the PMLN decided to also participate. Earlier this week, at a rally commemorating International Human Rights Day, a PMLN supporter explained her party's decision to participate in the elections. We are not going to leave the field open for the government and for the King's Party to have a total control of things. We are going to be there. We'll try to get as many people as we can in the assemblies. And then we are going to fight our cause for the restoration of the judiciary, independent judiciary, independent media and we'll try to fight it out there on the assembly floor. PMLN leader Nawaz Sharif has been disqualified from participating in elections due to previous criminal convictions, though others from his party will stand for election. Observers have remarked that without October's National Reconciliation Order, which withdrew corruption charges against Benazir Bhutto, she would also be ineligible to stand for election. Many speculate that this is why her party has not advocated for immediate restoration of the judiciary, since it is likely that if the original justices were reinstated, the National Reconciliation Ordinance would be struck down as unconstitutional. While many civil society groups have called for a boycott of the elections, some support the major opposition party's decision to participate, such as this young lawyer. Yes, I'm agreed this, because if they boycott the election, they will support the Musharraf. And if they are supporting Musharraf, then they are automatically supporting the emergency martial law in Pakistan now. A recent university graduate expressed uncertainty about whether individuals should refrain from voting. Um, I'm actually a little confused about that because uh, on the one hand you have the concept that it's wrong and that we should boycott them. But on the other hand, you need to bring about some change. And the change has to be brought about from within the system. So. Uh, I know that long-term change can only be brought about if you remove the system uh, from within. So it's a little confusing because then the, the, the nation is divided and they're boycotting on the one hand and people don't know what to do. Even for those who do support the elections, a common sentiment was a lack of faith in any of the major candidates. An artist who attended the rally explains. The political, political parties have also abused us. I mean, we have had Nawashi and Benazir and they've come twice and both times it has used us. So we, we have a... Um, uh, we need more leaders, but we don't have that right now. That's the main problem. Due to their lack of faith that upcoming polls will solve the major issues currently facing Pakistan, most agree that the struggle for an independent judiciary, free press, and democracy will continue well beyond the January 8th elections. For FSRN, this is Amber Vora in Lahore, Pakistan. Egyptian real estate tax collectors are in their second week of a national strike. They are demanding that the government pay them higher wages. The average salary at locally controlled real estate tax offices is equivalent to $54 a month. Workers want the control of their office to be transferred to the national government where salaries would be much higher. They say they will not end the strike until Egyptian officials meet their demands. The striking workers camped in front of the Egyptian cabinet are having a tough time, though. Cold weather and ongoing hunger strikes have left a handful of the protesters hospitalized. Now the tax collectors have appealed to Egyptian President Hosni Mubarak to help end the strike. 
FSRN correspondent Aya Batrawi has more on the situation from Cairo. Government-employed real estate tax collectors are in their second week of strike, demanding higher wages for their work. Heavily barricaded by state security, hundreds of workers are camped out in front of the Egyptian cabinet for the eighth day of protest. They represent a small handful of the 55,000 real estate tax collectors on strike throughout the country. It's the job of government-employed real estate tax collectors, such as Ibrahim Afadi, to ensure people pay their taxes for the massive real estate projects taking place in Egypt. Yet, after 25 years of work for the government as a tax collector, Afadi's monthly salary does not exceed 400 Egyptian pounds, or about $70. Another protester explained how he makes half of that, or about $40 a month. I make 233 Egyptian pounds a month. I'm going to eat with that, spend with that, live with that, clothe my children with that, and send them to school with that, pay my rent with that. Real estate is a booming sector in Egypt these days. The rich are moving to places where there is enough land to build massive corporate offices and large villa-style homes on the outskirts of Cairo. This increases the workload of real estate tax collectors and ensures the need for honest workers who collect money for the government. Tax collector Osama Nagdi explains. With my wages, do I steal from the people of Egypt or steal from the government? Well, I will not steal from the people or the government. So give me my rights so people can have their rights. When I come to collect taxes from someone and tell him you owe this much, I do it in accordance with God's way and not play with the government's money. This way the government gets its share too. Days after the strike began, Minister of Finance Yusuf Butrus Ghali promised in a meeting with representatives of the tax collectors to increase wages in three phases, but neither side reached an agreement. According to Egyptian newspapers, Butrus Ghali says he understands that the tax collectors are hard workers suffering under tough conditions, but in addition to Egypt's two million unemployed, there are people who earn even less than tax collectors do. Already, four strikers have been hospitalized for breathing difficulties due to cramped conditions in the barricaded area where the protest is taking place. Butchers Ghali reportedly says that if the strikers threaten to stay in the street until the problem is solved, then let them stay in the street, adding, quote, I will not allow anyone to twist my arm, end quote. Again, protester Osama Nagdi. Is it acceptable that we, the sons of Egypt, are this worthless to the Egyptian government to spend nights in the street? We find food or we don't. We find clothes or we don't. We are that worthless to you? Our fathers who fought in the 1973 war, they are that meaningless to you. All the good we do for Egypt, we see nothing of it in return. We don't want to borrow. We want to live like our counterparts. We will not leave without our rights. One thing, though, that the Ministry of Finance and the protesters can agree on is that both sides want the tax collectors to return to work sooner rather than later. Reporting for FSRN from Cairo, this is Aya Batrawi. After nearly a year and a half of political wrangling, Bolivia's Constitutional Assembly has approved a new draft constitution. 
Approval came over the weekend in a special session held in the city of Oruro, a stronghold of Bolivian President Evo Morales. But Morales' opposition has rejected the draft because a large number of the Constitutional Assembly's members were not present to vote and because it failed to grant autonomy to the wealthy, low-lying regions in the east of the country. FSRN's Diletta Varlisi reports. Bolivia won't be defeated. Long life to Bolivia. Long life to Constituent Assembly. Bolivia's Constituent Assembly has approved a new constitution intent to recognize the equal rights of its indigenous inhabitants and grants more equal access to land and natural resources. Bolivia has been dominated by the elite of European descent, leaving the indigenous people, two-thirds of the population, impoverished and marginalized. The president of the Constitutional Assembly, Silvia Lazarte, is herself a Quechua woman and the national secretary of the Bartolina Sisa Organization of Indigenous Women. I, as an indigenous woman, am very satisfied with the achieved result. In the new constitution, for the first time in our history, the role and the dignity of indigenous women has been taken under consideration and respected. It has cost us a year and a half of struggle and sacrifice, but it was worthwhile. The constitutional changes have made hotly contested. In late November, the debate has suspended and at least three people were killed and a hundred wounded during protests against the reform. Bolivia's opposition, which has staged protests and strikes in the resources-rich provinces in the east of Bolivia, reject the draft. Maria Lourdes Vaca de Buitrago is a spokesperson from the opposition in the city of Tarija. We won't accept this constitution because it does not take into account our request for economic autonomy and resource management. The opposition has demanded significant regional autonomy for the East that would allow those provinces to resist changes that weaken the power of the established elite. When the referendum to approve the constitution is held by the government, this region and all other eastern regions will vote no, because this text is not based on consensus. It has been imposed. In the months to come, Bolivians will vote on the proposed constitutional as a whole, as well as on a specific article meant to redistribute land as a measure to break up latifundios, massive privately held farms. Land ownership is to be limited to a specific amount, but the Assembly was unable to get a two-third majority support for this. Governors of the six eastern provinces have threatened to declare political and economic autonomy on December the 15th. For Free Speech Radio News, I'm Diletta Varlese from La Paz, Bolivia. You've been listening to Free Speech Radio News. Our newscast is supported by Pacifica Radio, community radio affiliate stations and listener supporters. We podcast at www.fsrn.org. That's fsrn.org. You can email us your feedback, questions, and story ideas to comments at fsrn.org. Today's newscast was produced by Monica Lopez and Tana Gousset, Headlines Editor Shannon Young, DC Editor Leanne Caldwell, and the technical production team at KPFA in Berkeley, Antonio Ortiz, Eric Klein, Puck Lowe, and Rose Kitabchi. I'm Jess Burns in Eugene, Oregon.
What's a win-win situation? You, donating a vehicle to an organization that you believe in, and then claiming a charitable contribution on your next tax returns. It's easy. You can support KPFA, your independent public broadcaster, by calling toll-free 1-866-628-2277. That's 1-866-628-2277. Or visit www.vehiclesforcharity.org. More information is available at kpfa.org. See? A win-win situation. As always, we appreciate your support. And here's to a winning new year. Supported KPFA, KPFB in Berkeley, KFCF in Fresno, Radio X and KBCS in Seattle, KWMD in Anchorage, WRFG in Atlanta, and on the World Wide Web at KPFA.org. Up next on Hard Knock Radio, we bring you more from the Gathering for Justice Conference recently held in Oakland. Today we'll hear from Congresswoman and Freedom Fighter Barbara Lee, along with actor and activist Danny Glover. All this coming to you straight ahead after the KPFA News Headlines with Max Pringle. The North African branch of Al-Qaeda is claiming responsibility for bombings today in Algeria that left more than two dozen people dead. The twin bombings sheared the facades off UN offices and a government building in Algeria's capital. A posting on a militant website describes how two suicide bombers drove the cars loaded with explosives. The statement calls the attack, quote, another successful conquest in defense of Islam. A United Nations official says fatalities include at least five UN employees. Officials say at least 26 people were killed and 177 wounded. Some sources say the toll is far higher. A doctor at one Algiers hospital puts the number killed at closer to 60. A UN spokeswoman in New York says the World Agency is still trying to account for more than a dozen people. Lawmakers today began investigating why the CIA destroyed videotapes that recorded al-Qaeda suspects undergoing waterboarding, while a former interrogator said the controversial technique yielded important information but amounted to torture. CIA Director Michael Hayden testified behind closed doors to the Senate Intelligence Committee, which has launched one of several investigations to determine if the agency broke any laws when it destroyed the tapes in 2005. 
Many countries, U.S. lawmakers, and human rights groups have denounced the simulated drowning technique as torture. Reports of its use, as well as harsh treatment of terrorist suspects, have damaged the U.S. image around the world. The full House of Representatives could vote as early as tomorrow to outlaw waterboarding. The U.S. Sentencing Commission voted unanimously today to allow some 19,500 prison federal prison inmates, most of them black, to seek reductions in their crack cocaine sentences. The commission, which sets guidelines for federal prison sentences, decided to make retroactive its recent easing of recommended sentences for crack offenses. Roughly 3,800 inmates could be eligible for release from prison within a year after the March 3rd effective date of today's decision. Federal judges will have the final say whether to reduce sentences. Inmate family representatives and other advocates had said a Supreme Court decision on Monday could only improve chances the commission would address the long-criticized disparity in sentences for crack and powder cocaine offenses. Crack is predominantly used by blacks, powder cocaine predominantly by whites. U.S. stocks sank today after the Federal Reserve trimmed interest rates rather than slashing them, letting down investors who fear the economy might slip into recession unless the central bank becomes more aggressive. Major indexes fell more than 2% after the Fed cut the benchmark Fed funds rate for a third time to fortify the economy against a credit crunch and a housing slump. But the quarter percentage point cut, while expected, was considered modest, while the accompanying statement failed to reassure investors that more cuts are coming. Shares of large manufacturers and banks, including Boeing and Citigroup, both beneficiaries of lower interest rates, plunged after the Fed's decision. California's Secretary of State will let five counties use their electronic voting machines in the February primary, despite her claim that the machines were sold without proper certification. Secretary of State Deborah Bowen is suing the manufacturer, Nebraska-based Election Systems and Software, Inc., for selling the machines to Calusa, Marin, Merced, San Francisco, and Solano counties. But Bowen says those counties can use the equipment for the February 5th presidential primary if they take safeguards to make sure votes are properly counted. That means the five counties won't have to replace their 972 machines in just two months. Bowen and the city of San Francisco were both suing the manufacturer. San Francisco supervisors are also considering switching to a different system. That's it for news headlines this hour. I'm Max Pringle. Stay tuned for more news later today with the hour-long KPFA evening news at 6. Now back to Hard Knock Radio. It's your boy David Banner, Mr. Mississippi himself, and you are now about to be exposed to one of the most phenomenal feats of all time, Hard Knock Radio. This is Congresswoman Barbara Lee. When I'm not throwing down on the floor of Congress, looking out and fighting for your rights, I'm listening to Hard Knock Radio.
seldom travel by the multitude. The devil's devil has a couple fools. My culture's screwed, cause this word is misconstrued. Small countries exempt from food, cause leaders have different views. You choose. What mean the world to me is being free. Live and let live and just let it be. Let it be. Love, peace, and harmony. One universal family. One God, one aim, and one destiny. Imagine life without a choice at all. Giving a hope without a voice at all. These be the problems that we face. I'm talking poverty and race. But no matter what the case, we gotta When the word freedom's involved Yo, my forefathers hung in trees to be free Rest in peace Got rid of slavery but still kept the penitentiary And now freedom got a shotgun and shells with your name Release the hot ones and let freedom I'm a former vote prisoner, Hollywood visitor Dance for cats segregated on wax My color got me handy Cap, Anderson and Andy For the freedom they just won't hand me Congresswoman Barbara Lee. Good morning, my brothers and sisters. Let me just say how happy I am to see you here. How excited I am and humbled I am to be with you and I want to thank you for that very warm introduction and I want to thank all of you for coming to Oakland which really is the the home of the Black Panther Party <laughs> and you are bringing a spirit and a movement to an area where much of what has taken place over the last 50 years really uh, began. And so I just want to thank you for coming here to demand justice and to demand real change in our country. You are the future. Know your power. Know your power. Because it's up to you to change America. And that's what you are doing. 
Let me uh, thank, first of all, uh, Mr. B, Harry Belafonte. Where's Where's Harry? I want to thank you. Harry, thank you so much. You have blazed the trail as an icon, a political powerhouse, the Grand Marshal of the Civil Rights Movement. Your legacy as a pioneer for equality and freedom and justice and peace is reflected really in the vision that you have in creating this gathering for justice. And I want to say to you, Harry, you could be doing a lot of other things at this point in your life. He could be retired, you know, but instead he is given us the inspiration and the knowledge and the skills and the clarity of purpose that we need to move on to secure the future. So, Harry, I just want to thank you. I want to thank you for coming to Oakland. I, I thought this would be a good place to, to kick this off. And I, I appreciate you and love you. And it's, it's so good to see you here. Thank you again, Harry. Give Harry another round of applause. Now, you know, uh, unfortunately, in March of 2005, Jaisha Scott was handcuffed and arrested by three police officers for being unruly in her kindergarten. Can you imagine kindergarten class? Who can be unruly in a kindergarten class? She was five years old. Five years old. And sadly, Jaisha is the norm in our country rather than an anomaly. This sparked leaders like Harry Belafonte and many of you, many youth advocacy groups to band together, and I mean band together, and that's what you're doing here, to stop this frontal assault that's taking place on our children. So we're here today because our young people are under siege, and we cannot stand by and continue to let this happen. We cannot let this happen. So I welcome you this morning in the name of justice and peace. You know, Dr. King, and I'm always reminded of what our brilliant drum major for justice said, who was who Harry Belafonte stood side by side with. He said, peace is not just the absence of tension. It is the presence. It is the presence of justice, the presence of justice. And so what you're doing here is making sure that justice, I won't even say prevail, but that justice becomes a reality for our children and our young people. A reality. And that's what this movement is about. That's what it's about. I want to tell you a few things uh, as, a, as a lawmaker and why I want to emphasize this. Because I was served in the California legislature. And, you know, these unjust laws are made by politicians. They're written by elected officials. And let me give you an example. When I was in the California legislature, I was on the public safety committee and a three strikes law came down. Three strikes, 25 years to life for nonviolent offenders on the third strike. Well, we fought and fought and fought to try to stop this, but unfortunately we couldn't. And I said then, like we know now, that the majority of individuals who would be incarcerated un under three strikes would be young African-American, Latino, and minority young people. And that is exactly what has happened. Exactly. But these are lawmakers that wrote that law and that passed that law. Not with my vote. I mean, there may have been 
two or three votes against it. But I share that because when this three strikes law was coming through the process, I traveled the state. I talked to young people. I talked to members of the clergy. I begged folks to get politically active and to call their legislators to march, to have sit-ins, to say, no, you're, we're going to hold you accountable. But that did not happen. That did not happen. And it, it did not happen because we did not educate people with regard to the power, the power of the process in terms of people's power. People's power in terms of going in, sitting in, saying, look, we're going to hold you accountable. Do not vote for three strikes. That should have happened. It didn't happen. Now look at what we're dealing with in terms of the horrible, huge, unjust incarceration rates in the state of California. Gun control. We have to get the guns off the street. We need to get the guns off the street. We must get the guns off the street. But you know who runs the show in Washington, D.C.? It's the NRA, the National Rifle Association. But you know why they run the show? Because we don't know our power. We haven't gone in to our elected officials, members of Congress, and said, in no way do you support this NRA agenda. We have a vested interest in our community. We have a vested interest in getting the guns off the street. So that is one thing we have to understand, that it's your vote and your power that can change some of these unjust laws that have been written by some of these elected officials who don't even know what they are doing and what impact they are making in terms of wreaking havoc on your lives and on the lives of our children. So as the gatherings grow and as the movement grows and builds and becomes stronger, I urge you, I urge you to continue to network, to continue to work in your own communities to begin to say no to these unjust laws but you have to add a political dimension to this you must do that and i've shared this with harry and everyone who i talk to because i want you to come to washington dc and i've shared this i'm the first vice chair of the congressional black caucus and i told the congressional black caucus what we were doing and what you were doing around the country and they want you to come to washington dc to Capitol Hill, to Capitol Hill, you hear me? To Capitol Hill, because it is very important that your members of Congress understand that you are powerful, that you're going to register to vote, and that you're going to hold them accountable. Hold them accountable to passing laws for education, for schools, rather than building bombs and prisons, right? That's where our resources should be put. You're going to hold them accountable for putting funding in. And I'm very pleased to say we did pass the Second Chance Act, which provides resources for drug treatment, rehabilitation, job training, and job creation. Not enough money, but some. But you want your elected officials to say, hey, we want some alternatives to this madness. We want you to write some just laws for our children, not unjust laws. So as we move forward, as you think about what we're doing here and how the gathering has become a powerful movement, don't forget about 
the political dimension of what you're doing. Because as I look out, I mean, you, you are the future and you are the movement that's going to change America to be what it can be in terms of the American dream, the unfinished business of America, which is a nightmare, a nightmare for so many of our children. Finally, I just have to say this because you know I'm trying and to stop this occupation of Iraq and this war. I'm every day, I was in Washington all week trying to stop the funding. No more money. And we're making some progress, but not enough. A half trillion dollars plus. Can you imagine? Can you imagine what you could do with a half trillion dollars? Can you imagine? And so part of this struggle for justice has got to include our voices being raised for peace. For peace. Because young people deserve that half trillion dollars. You deserve it. For your schools, for jobs, for housing, for health care, for taking care of your families, and for your future. So we can't remember, can't forget that this has got to be a movement and a struggle and a march for peace and justice. Peace and justice. So let me just once again thank Harry Belafonte and thank all of you for tuning this movement up, for bringing the gathering to Oakland, California, and for making sure that our young people, that you, people who understand what unjust laws are, that, that you lead this movement now for peace and justice in the United States of America, which means we're going to lead the world in, in our struggle and in our fight for nonviolence and for violence prevention. I always say as I sit down that how can our young people, how can we convince you that violence is not an option on the streets of America when you see our government engaging in violence each and every day, bombing and invading and killing people. So you've got to tell your Congress people, you've got to tell your elected officials that this is a nonviolent movement, nonviolent. Stop the violence, and that means stopping the violence in our own communities and stopping our violence on behalf of the United States government abroad. Thank you. Good luck. I look forward to being with you. God bless you. Davey D. hanging out with you this afternoon. We are downtown Oakland at the Marriott at the Gathering. Harry Belafonte brought together activists and concerned community members and elected officials from all over the country for a historic event. And somebody who sparked it off is our very own congressperson, Barbara Lee. How you doing this afternoon? Good morning. No, I'm doing great. Getting out of Washington, D.C. after a tough week, coming home to this excitement, energy, uh, to what the future really is about is, is inspirational for me. What did you think of uh, Belafonte's speech? He brought a lot of people to task. You know, he put a lot of feet to the fire from the rappers to uh, people who are charged with changing the law to community elders. And he, he basically seemed to say everybody needs to step it up. Well, he should. That's the point. That's the point. You know, all of us have to be held accountable for what we do in this world. Mm -hmm. And if we're not doing the right thing by our young people, by our children, then we need to be taken to task. And I'm glad he's doing that. That's why I'm part of this. 
This is a movement for justice, a gathering for justice, and justice still has not been realized in America. Now, you know, in your remarks, you brought home some pretty salient points about talking about that a lot of things went down on our watch because we didn't engage the political process. How do we reconcile the type of attitude and the type of philosophy that some people have had that said the system doesn't matter, that voting will not make a difference? In fact, um, to participate is to further contaminate yourself as well as the system. Well, I think we can see what has happened when we don't participate. And I use the three strikes law in California as an example. I travel this state trying to wake up Californians to the devastating impact on young African-American Latino men if that law had passed. There was very uh, little response. There was silence. So what happened? We have a three strikes law. And exactly what I predicted has happened. The majority of uh, those incarcerated under three strikes are African-American and Latino young men. So if we're not participating, then uh, it's, it is the power structure. It is those who create unjust laws uh, who will prevail. Okay, something to definitely think about. What is the one thing that you want people to leave here with? I want people to leave here with, first of all, the inspiration and the skills and the motivation to go back to their communities to organize and to know their power. I mean, this is a powerful gathering for justice. And they've got to go home and continue this in their own communities and hold their elected officials accountable for laws that are passed that are unjust laws. They need to take them out and they need to uh, support those elected officials who will move the gathering for justice's agenda forward. You know, looking at the presidential uh, race, how do we start bringing some of those people in line? It seems like everybody from Barack on down is not addressing those issues. Well, and I tell you, I have not endorsed anyone at this point because of that. And I think uh, this is probably is the best collection of candidates we've seen in a long time. But they're still not on point. What they are is on message based on what polling data right. is providing for them. And so it's up to us to create that public opinion that you've got to talk about the criminal injustice. But how, how do we practically do it if we're not there? Like, I can't, we can't even get Barack on this show. You know, he, he's gone to Hot 97 to talk about his favorite hip-hop group and dance with Ellen DeGeneres, but we can't get him to at, to talk to us about Gina. He's on MySpace. We haven't seen a message or a bulletin outlining policy. Like, I get a newsletter from you every week with information. Every single week we get something from you, and we get it from other people, but he's running, and it's like I'm trying to figure out, you know, what's it going to take, you know, to get people like that who say they want to be engaged and seem to be detached. But well, I think the, the, the issue is accountability. If that's the case, then people should know who responds, who's non-responsive, and who, where their vote should be cast, for whom. And I think it's important that we keep asking all of the candidates these issues, in addition to Barack, Senator Clinton, Senator uh, Edwards. All of them need to be accountable and held accountable. And I'm sure folks will know who to vote for based on their response or lack of response. And you know, my last question, just since we have you here, you know, you've always been championing a lot of the stuff with Haiti. What's going on with that? What should we be updated with? with respect well, to we're that? still trying to push forward my truth commission. Uh, I've talked to the chair of the subcommittee. You know, I've introduced legislation that calls for a full investigation with regard to the United States involvement in the coup d'etat, the overthrow of President Aristide. So I hope people will focus on that, ask their members of Congress to support Congresswoman Lee's uh, truth commission. Uh, we're looking to try to have a hearing next week, but I think it's absolutely critical that we know how our government was involved using U.S. taxpayers' dollars to overthrow a democratically elected president. Well, there you have it. We've been talking with Barbara Lee. We're down here at the gathering. Thank you very much, Congresswoman, and we'll see you in a bit. Peace for now. I looked at the moon so full and so bright, 
and then at the fireplace with his flickering light, and realized why this world will never be right. Then I threw another log on the fire. We be, uh huh.
intensified rage. The word now is seize the time and all power to the people. Power to the people. Power to the people. Power to the people. We be, we be, we be, we be, uh-huh. Davey D hanging out with you this afternoon. We are still down here at the gathering. Uh, we just heard uh, Harry Belafonte set things off. And one of the people that he paid a great amount of respect to and gave major props to, and then when his uh, name was acknowledged, he got a standing ovation. And I think he said your name and Paul Robinson's name in the same breath almost. We're talking about our favorite actor, Mr. Danny Glover. How you doing, sir? Dave, Davey, how you doing, buddy? How you doing? Good, man. You know, first of all, what did you think about Harry Belafonte's speech? I mean, he really brought some heat. I, I think that... He understood that the time is not right now. This is not us of just maneuvering around the edges and talking about the edges of what is really happening. In this sense, more than any other point in time, as we look at the crisis that's affecting our young kids and young children, men and women, right here, right here in Oakland, right here in this nation and around the world, what is right. happening with the, what is happening as if they're the... The means of governance have, have, have just simply ignored them and, and left them without the resources that are necessary for them to survive. And what he's saying is that we have to stand up right now. They have to stand up right now. We all have to stand up now. If we really do save this, I like the analogy when he talked about King, you know, that these young men have to be the firemen. Hmm. We have to be, these young men and women have to be the firemen. You know, one of the things when I look at, and I, I, of course I never knew Paul Robinson, but just reading his life, you know about him. He made he made tremendous sacrifice to his career. You know, got ostracized and what have you. And we've seen the attempts to uh, have you demonized. You know, the Bill O'Reilly of the world advocating that you be boycotted and all sorts of things. How does somebody like you still speak truth to power? when at any moment it seems like they can all of a sudden remove Danny Glover from our presence, so to speak. Well, well, I, I think that what is happening, what I realized is one of the most important, one of the most important beneficiaries of my career, because this career doesn't belong to me. Okay. This belongs to a legacy of men and women who struggle. This is not my career. And okay. I've never seen this as a career. Right. And, and, and in fact, when I, when I try to, to look at my work as a cultural worker, my work has value. Right. And right. That, va that value is something that elicits the kind of response and energy that people, that, the hum that human beings demonstrate as they struggle for justice in the world. If, if, if we were able to dissect all of our work, mm -hmm. we'd have to deal, talk about what's whose side we on in the world, deconstruct that work, whose side we on in the world, what is important for us in the world. So I, I don't, those are the things that don't bother me in some sense. But I mean, how, do, how do we encourage other people to have that same sort of principle, to be able to stand on that sort of principle? And I'll give you an example. I know, like, right after Katrina, the record labels put a lot of pressure on hip-hop artists not to speak to that. In fact, some of the most outspoken people, like David Banner, yeah. really suffered from it. You know, they got their records pulled, their promotion was cut short, and, you know, and they, they, they came well, under well, a lot well, of fire. Well, look, look what happened to Kanye West, you know, when he said that Bush doesn't care about us, you know, he right. had to retract that, you know right. what I'm saying? And, and so, I, I think, it's, I don't know, you know, I can't speak for other artists, you know, there are other ways in which they, they'll find their voice, okay. you know, and, and I think on the um, at this particular point, since this is their moment to make their history, they don't right. have to make the choices to make their history, you know. Okay. And that's not a choice that they'll be informed by what others have done, what Harry has done, what Paul has done, right. what Ozzy and Ruby have done, and many other artists have done right. in terms of making the sacrifices for justice okay. and trying to create, create a better world and uh, sacrifices for change. 
Yeah. You know, so I know that they'll do that that work, and they'll be forced. To. We have to force them to do that. Okay. We we as their audience. We got to be more of a scare than than their employers. Look here, you know, Harry and what he did has done take place within a political context. Okay. It, it took place in a, a political context where the body politics was expanding through okay. the civil rights movement, right. the black power movement, through the response of young people right. all over the country. As he said that, and he, that gave him clearance and Clear. gave him voice in another way. Okay. We have to find that same place with our young people. We have to mobilize these people and demand accountability and demand that the records are records and the words of choice are the words of liberation. We have to demand that. Okay. And we have to demand that. And we have to demand that from my... And the record companies are going to have to deal with that, you know? Okay. You know, and, and I, no, I'm, I, I hope I'm not simplifying it. This is no, not I don't a, think you, you know what, I, don't, no, I, don't, I don't want to use the, the hyperbola to kind of simplify this, you know? No, no, I, I don't think you are. I mean, yeah. if I understand it, and, I, and hopefully our listeners understand it, is that, you know, and, and, and maybe just to kind of quote what Harry was saying, we got to agitate. We got to create conditions where those artists know that it's going to be to their betterment to go, to roll with the community. Like when I was at KML, I always had that position where like when they would want me to do certain things, I knew there would be a heavier price to pay in the community if I went one way than to listen to them. So I always was able to fall back, you know. But that, that's why they got rid of you, man. <laughs> you know what I'm saying? That's <laughs> but, why. But, but better opportunities came along. Yeah, but the opportunities come along. Yeah. People don't have the opportunity to speak say, Sean Penn is here. Right. Now, Sean Penn doesn't have to be here. Right. You know, right. he could he could be saying, and the questions and the questions probably around the people who are really around Sean Penn, mm. who, who think they, they know Sean Penn and say, why are you doing this? Right, right. Why are you sitting around with a bunch of young people right. who, who are, are going to challenge the system? Right. You know? And John has said, my life, who I am, is not founded in the system itself. Right. It's founded on another kind of sensibility, another okay. kind of value in terms of justice. Right. And he's demonstrated that. And that and that's rooted in what? That's rooted in whose choices, what's whose side he decides to be on in the world. Okay. When he decides to go down to Katrina with his boat and everything and to begin to, to rescue people, that's a choice he made. That's a constant choice he made. You right, know? right. When he decided to go before the war happened in Iraq, that's the choice he made. Okay. You know? And when he decides to go to Venezuela, where those are choices you made to say this isn't what i think this is where i'm going to be in the world okay. you're going to have to deal with that and you're okay. going to confront me you're going to take away this stuff that you annoy me with this stuff this is this, this, this not the essence this is of temporary life. stuff this is all temporary man right right we, well you know how we come into the world with our babies you know we leave the world that way too man we've been talking with denny glover um you know you traveled around the world you got a chance to see everybody and meet people from hugo chavez and on down you know and now we have this big presidential election. How do you gauge this? What needs to, you know, what needs to be done to light a fire? Or do these are these candidates reaching the mark? Or who should we be considering? Well, it's, it's my thing. I, I think if we would look at Harry said it so so proud. If the business is about isn't about poor people and working people, then there ain't no business. Okay. You know what I'm saying? He's clearly about that. Okay. We're looking, we're looking at a situation where 47 million people are without, working people are without health care. Right. We're looking at a situation where our schools, our, our schools within inner cities uh, are, are, are simply been eviscerated. The okay. whole systems, the whole structures, everything. We're, we're looking at, 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 at a situation where we look at the, the prison, indus, prison industrial complex and see what's happening to our young people and where, where that's all directed. So we have to make sure that we, they're addressing we, we, we those have, issues. We, we 
have to make sure that they address those issues. It's, it's easy to talk about security and the, and the, and, the, and the war on quote unquote so called, and I underline right. the so called war on terror. You know, right, right. you know. But what about this so called war on terror around poor people, right. people of color, and working class people here? We need to find find that. In my own case, in that sense, I come out uh, supporting. John Edwards. Okay. Because he's talked about the issue. Have you have you ever been have you been able to sit down with any of them and talk with them directly? You know, have you sat down with Edwards himself? Have you talked with Kucinich or have you well, met well, with I, Barack or anybody? Edwards is someone I think this possibility of, of following Edwards and perhaps winning the Democratic nomination lies with Edwards, you know, okay. in some sense. You know? Okay. And, and I think we have to be practical and pragmatic in this sense too. Okay. As much as as much and it's not to put anything Dennis Kucinich is a friend of mine. Right. Dennis and Dennis is going to bring up on the issues and, and everything, but as Dennis is going to be able to galvanize people right. and build a movement and give, build, have an art to that movement, right. you in know, other not, words, not you a can win the Super Bowl. You know what I'm saying? In that sense, and that's that we have to go with that and have to understand that. Okay. And the pressure we put on Edwards, or, we, or if it's Obama, or whether it's Hillary Clinton, the pressure we put on them is critical okay. in terms of them that gets them faced up with the issues. No jargon. No, no, no rhetoric, okay. you know, to get them faced up with the issues. What are you? What are your plans for young people? What are oh. your plans for revitalizing our schools? Okay. What are your plans? We're really talking about education. Right. What are your past plans for the massive infrastructure, infrastructure redevelopment that has okay. to? We need a Marshall Plan. We oh. need a Marshall Plan in our inner city. And not the Marshall Plan. They're trying to get to put Marshall Law. Uh, not hey, that plan. You. Not that plan. <laughs> we need a real. We talking about the Marshall Plan right. to rebuild Europe. Okay. We need that kind of thing. We don't know our history. 1945. Millions and billions of dollars are placed in Europe to rebuild rebuild Europe. I didn't know that. Okay. Yeah, billions. Dollars okay. were placed on the Marshall Plan, and we can't and we can't get we can't get New Orleans back. We can't, we, 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 can't, get, we can't get New Orleans back. We can't get the people wow. who rightfully own New Orleans back to where they live. Like that, we need that. We need to be focused on health care. Okay, you know? we need to be focused on what is happening to the planet here and mm. what is happening really in terms of clim climate change, right? And protecting this fragile environment. We need that president. We need some real leadership here. Okay, it's not. We need. We don't need a, a president who strokes the fires of fear. Okay, you know, who takes fear as as their, their national. Answer, or fear, take us for granted. And take us for granted, you know? Yeah. So those are the kind of things that we have to talk about, really. If we're not talking about that. If we're not engaging ourselves in expanding the body politics again. Every single movement has expanded the body politics. Okay. What is happening is that there's been a contraction of the body politics. Okay. You know, the civil rights movement expanded the body, body politics. Every movement demanded change. And demanded change is expanding the body politics. And that means these young people right here in this audience are going to have to reach out in the millions right. to, to be a part of the body politics. So would you, so would you say we got to hit them at every angle, we the electoral hit, as well we, as the grassroots? We got to hit them at every single angle. You okay. say that you don't want to say you can't. You don't have the luxury. Every one of us is a part of each other's future. Right. We don't have the luxury to be uh, to have benign and neglect. We don't have the luxury to have apathy. We don't have that luxury. Okay. We got to begin taking the movement right there at this particular moment and taking control of it. That's real talk. We've been talking with Danny Glover, and it looks like, you know, the one thing I would say, you could have given that speech as well as Harry. You know, I know that's a Harry is. <laughs> Harry is our comrade. You yeah, know, there you uh, go. He's all our comrades, man. I mean, you imagine, imagine talking about meeting he and King sitting down at 24 and 26 years old. Right. You know what I'm saying? 
Well, this is what we're talking about. This is what the real deal is, you know. But you know, it's and interesting. And making a commitment, making a commitment, a life commitment. It's interesting that you brought that up because at the same time that Harry Belafonte was meeting with Dr. King and, yeah. you know, and Stokely Carmichael, yeah. Kwame Torre, and uh, absolutely, all those Absolutely. There's a book uh, written by NWA's former manager named Jerry Heller. Okay. Um, it's called Ruthless. And in the book, he gives all the gossip about Dr. Dre and Ice Cube. But he also talks about his autobiography, you know, coming up. Uh-huh. And what was interesting, because we're talking about in the mid-60s, early 60s mm-hmm. and mid-60s, he's talking about his partners. He's like, well, you know, when me and uh, uh, David Geffen were hanging out and Clyde Davis were hanging out, and they all were meeting and talking about how to put the infrastructure together for the music business. And, you know, this is what we're dealing with, with better for worse than now. Exactly. And I guess what I'm getting at is that if you look at, if you take that as a lesson... And you juxtapose it to what you were talking about, Harry, meeting with King and everybody else. Mm-hmm. Maybe we should borrow that and see the value in ourselves the way that these folks on both sides of the political spectrum were seeing value in their comrades to expand. They expanded the music industry. You know, there was a political and social justice <laughs> movement that got expanded. And that expansion to our detriment to ourselves, to young people's detriment, that yeah. expansion of it. Because yeah. what, what, what happened was, and, and it, we talk about, there's been more technology. Right that's been developed and created than any time in the last 50 years in any time right. in the whole history of human existence. Right. You know, and they understood one thing, that we were only at, at the preface or right. there's been the apex of the change in technology. Right. They knew that. And right. they knew that, that the, the king of all kings was going to speak at that time. Money. Yeah. And that's what... And and let, me, and let me also be clear. I'm not giving major no, no, props no, no, to that no, industry. No, 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 no. They I, built, I know you They, built, not, they built a devilish empire, yeah, but yeah. nevertheless... How do we sustain it? One of the things that we say, we're talking about expanding the body politics, what I'm saying. Mm-hmm. As you look at, we come out of the 1950s, at right after World War, right after World War II, this is an enormous movement around peace, right. around justice, around, around issues around decolonization, around issues around national identity, the movement around nationalism. It was derailed. By that, by the, the move to against communism, that's right. the first derailage. Okay, that's the way in which they derail. You take the, the Manchester Conference in 1945, okay. first Pan African Con- Congress. You had Nkrumah there. You had Jomo Kenyatta there. You had you had the, some of the great thinkers, uh, thinkers of CCL, CR James, CCR James, CLR James. This is in 1945. This is 1945. So this is before we quote unquote got our independence. Yeah, no, no, this is all been all oh. these great things. Like Gandhi, all these things. We had the great Pan African Conference. Wow. <clears throat> All these great leaders who came there. Right. But I don't care where you were there at that particular Congress. You know, and that, and that was just before that. You had Albert Einstein, one of the leading progressives of his time. Hmm. Albert Einstein was the co-chair in 1946 of the anti-lynching campaign. He and Paul Robeson were the co-chair of that anti-lynching campaign. Wow. Nobody knows that. That's history they don't give us in school. That's the relationship. All you see is this scientist who has to stick his tongue out. This is one of the leading progressives. He was on the defense committee of the Scottsboro Boys. Albert Einstein. Wow. Albert Einstein. And I follow. So here's you have this movement around intellectual, this movement around a working working class, a very in nineteen forty seven, the passage of the Taft Hartley Law, which which almost forget almost crippled labor and its ability to organize. Wow. You know wow. what I'm saying? All these things happened at a particular time. It's a people movement and expanding the body politics. With the expansion of that body politics with only two point five billion people in the world, with the expansion of that body politics was happening wow. in, in locally or in the national, it was the expansion of that. Okay. And essentially, the dark years of McCarthy era.
Center in the U.S. committee. So that was the reaction to the, that. The reaction, the reaction to that. And certainly, you can't, you can't prophesize yourself as the liberator of the free world when you have Af African Americans being lynched. It was the first year in the 20th century that there was not a recording lynching was in 1947. First year in the 20th century. Wow. You can't, you cannot have that. So the civil rights movement emerges out of that. And then the civil rights movement, of course, is broad and it's, and it's complex in so many ways. It's multidimensional. Then right. you have this cat who comes out here who at every step, the king in 1955 at the Montgomery Boy, bus boycott was not the same king 12 years later when he was talking about the relationship between the military, racism, and materialism. Right. When he talked about we needed to have a moral change, that there had to be a different level of moral change. This king was using the philosophy of nonviolence right. as a weapon and then talking about the system. And then talking about the system not only in terms of black people, but poor people and wow. oppressed people, not only here but around the world. He made the connection between Africa. He made the connection between the war in Vietnam and right. how it eviscerated the poverty programs, so-called poverty programs. This is the kind of movement expanding the body politic, David. Right. It kept expanding the body politic. So we got to see the pattern. Because it, it seems like if you're expanding it in 47, there's a reaction. Yeah. You know, backlash. Yeah. If you expand it in the 60s, there's yeah. a reaction in the backlash. What, 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 has been the, what has been the reaction to, to us in the backlash? One of the things... They, they, we got more black elected officials. That's the backlash. Right. The other thing, we have more black people, more 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 people of color in jail. That's the backlash. Right. The other back, what's the other backlash to that? The other black backlash has been drugs, a disintegration of our public school system, public services, everything. That's been the backlash. Hmm. That's been that's been the kind of unseen backlash. At the okay. same rate, this, the, the, the the economy and the country is creating more wealth than at any point at every time. Right, they can lose a trillion dollars on the mar on the stock market. But then, but then they try to redirect us. And I just want to ask you as we get ready to close out. Uh. You know, we were talking the other day about um, Jay Z, rapper. Yeah. And uh, the model, Giselle uh, Bunchen, I guess it's her name. You know, where she demanded that she didn't want to be paid in U.S. currency. Uh -huh. She wanted to be paid in euros or something else. And yeah. then Jay-Z did a video um, where he was tossing around euros. Uh -huh. And on CNBC, they talked about this visualization and these popular icons are going to reverberate around the world because people would see these icons and moving away from the U.S. dollar and it would contribute to, uh -huh. you know, the ongoing devaluing of the dollar. And I thought about that for a minute and I said to myself, well, you know, if Jay-Z did this consciously, uh -huh. the way the hedge fund people are doing, uh -huh. maybe there's a reason to keep art, especially when it's coming out of our community in a teenage perpetual, you know, childlike stage as opposed to a more wizened type of situation, uh -huh, uh -huh. you know, and I wanted to know, you know, from your standpoint, it seems like if you get older and you get wiser and you become less fearful of speaking out, uh -huh, you know, uh -huh. it seems like there's a move to kind of keep us, you know, like we don't want no adults. We don't want black men and black women speaking up. We want them to remain kids and remain forever young and inexperienced. And I wanted to get your take on this, you know, whether or not, first of all, if you saw that as an ongoing pattern or if this is just a new tactic to try and keep maybe some of the game that you were spitting to us today uh, in terms of history and giving us some sort of perspective and a long-term vision if, th if that's a way to kind of keep that sort of conversation uh, not only absent from the discussion but if it does show up to have people react like well he's an old man what does he know about you know well, well, two things. I think I think you made a very important part. The, the fact that, that they keep us as children to maintain our, our, our thoughts and to maintain an idea that our imagination 
is, 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 is confined in certain way. The whole idea of imagination, Einstein said that imagination is more than knowledge. Right. The first thing that we have to look at is, is, is when we think about what are we talking about in terms of this, you know. If we look at the history of young people, always young people have been right at the apex, right at the moment of change and been the orchestrators of change. Right. I don't care where you at in the world. Mm -hmm. When you talk about those mothers in the Plaza de, de, de Mayo in Argentina, you know, who's, uh, those are their young kids who were killed, who didn't kids, the mothers of the disappeared. Those were, there's always young people that you went after that you attempted to attack. But right. they were the most vulnerable, they were the most visionary, and not when I say most visionary, they had the energy right. and the passion for right. change. It was a part of being young, it's this whole idea. So you can't you kill them, so you redirect them. You, you redirect them. Okay. And they've been redirected. Right. The fact is that they've been redirected. You take the idea, and I think it's, a very, it's an, an interesting statement in terms of the euro versus the dollar. Because the people who have hedge funds, people who have money, and money shifts, capital shifts at such a rate, you know, from one place to this place in the euros into, into other defined kind of benefits, in the other kind of ways, in so many different ways, that it doesn't make any difference if you, if you really, if you're really talking about protecting your money, whether you have it in euros, whether you have it in yen, or whether you have it in, in, uh, uh, in, in dollars or whatever, right. because you're able to shift that. One of the, the, the main which comes when they, when they broke down and dissolved the whole standard in, ter in terms of looking and valuing money was that money could go anywhere that they want to go. Right. It can go, and it can destabilize. As long as we all agree. And capitalists agree on that. They know okay. that, you know. When they, we harp and harp and on about China. China's the leading, the leading producer of commodities in the world with one trillion dollars in foreign in, in foreign reserves and most of that is tied up in the u.s system most of the time so all these guys are going all this bannering and war margling and saber rattling about china the real reality is that china is there uh, just as much there uh, as they've ever been before right, right. so well, but capitalist systems do compete against each other. They okay. do kill each other and shoot each other in the first when they have a chance to do that. Okay. But more money moves all the time. So okay. the idea that the dollar is going through this enormous evaluation, in fact, is in, in terms of the Canadian dollar, it's the lowest since the, the, the value of the Canadian has the highest in relationship to the, to the dollar since the Civil War. Well, yeah, I know. You know what? It's the highest since the Civil War. So I think those are the kind of things. But we, what we have to do is understand that on, on, on this level, we have to understand how that play is played out on this level. We also understand that the real mobilization takes place. When you see money be placed in the social, social systems, when you see the revenues of a country going to the people of those countries and benefiting the people of those countries through health care and through education and through, through literacy and all that stuff, through a certain kind of communal jobs, creation. We're reaching the point where we said we have peak oil. And having peak oil, that means that a lot of the stuff we're gonna do be able to be able to doing around the world in terms of commerce is gonna be localized in a different way. Okay. You know, I'm saying those are kind of realities that have and have to be localized given that this this current system is not sustainable and they know it's not sustainable. Mm. And what they're gonna do with it is try to drag us down. They're gonna put us in a position where they eviscerate our imagination or leave us incapable of imagining anything better and to hold on to this. I don't care if you if you if you 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 got a thousand gold chains around your neck, or if you, if you don't have any, right. we're all in the same boat. That's uh, that's real talk right there. We've all been right. talking with Danny Glover, Mr. Glover. We want to thank you for taking right, time out, man. And and one thing we can count on you is that uh, you won't be voting for Rudolph Giuliani. In <laughs> <laughs> we can count on you for that. Look at him. I'm gonna try to whoever I'm gonna beat up. He's gonna beat up. He's gonna know I'm there, man. You know.
you gonna make your presence felt. You don't know it there, and young people gonna know I'm there. I'm, okay. I'm gonna get out here and say, I'm, you need to be out there. You yeah. Know? Well, there you go. We need to expand the body politic. That's and the, the, the one thing that they won't, they'll want you to do, is expand the body politic. They don't want us in the game. They don't want you in the game. So I say, know? get in the game and set it up, yeah, yeah. mess it up. All right. Baby. We out for now. Hey, this is Danny Glover, and you tuned in right here to Hard Knock Radio. Let's get it on. And moving the street. The more clearer than the crystal sky, blue as the beast. But the people ain't got shoes for their feet. A food to eat, so they hurtin'. But what's for certain, you could get you some heat. And over beef, you laid the rest like you was getting some sleep. Where the little kids get ammunition? Word. You can't get no nutrition or any type of suitable living condition. Listen, I shoot you over that paper. It's just survival. It's human nature to put you out your misery like euthanasia. Yeah. Don't let them fool you. We ain't different than the euthanasia. Africa or Europe, it's a small world with truly neighbors. If they the third world, then who the first? Get to heaven, I know it's hard, but who does God choose to go through it worse? Usually it's the prophets, ask the cap, what really matters nowadays, usually it's his pockets. You gotta get back to what really matters. Word. We gotta touch our soul to find Driving and typing, not paying attention, missing the next exit. Depending on navigation, they never know where they're going. They stay stuck in one spot, they're not growing. I'm so overcrying, waiting and hoping, playing the land game. The game changed, we in a different world like Wayne Wayne. Come on, getting high just to maintain. Yeah, take my music like a drug and drop the needle in the same vein. I get a rush like I'm speaking of flow. Except it ain't via the nose, it's from deep in my soul. Through street slang, I'll be speaking it cold. Kicking the dose, freaking the flow till the speakers explode. We in control, the people know I speak the truth. The power, my roots are thick in the sour sop, and it's so strong. They busting out the flower pot. Hey, family tradition is to tell them you love them while your family living from granny in the kitchen. A little man, I'm trying to get back. Yeah. To what really matters. That's right. Come on. You gotta touch our soul to find out what we're after. Let's go. Let's go. The more I got my voice, the more they try to make it harder. Ha. Ha. Mom and dad, don't forget to warn your sons and daughters. So real. About the Everybody turns their back on you. It's kind of hard to keep faith in the things that you do when everybody turns their back on you. It's kind of hard to keep faith in the things that you do 
when everybody turns their back on you. It's kinda hard to keep faith in the things that you do when everybody turns their back. Again, this is Hard Knock Radio. My name is Mike Biggs here at the controls. We are winding down. You're checking out the sounds of Tilab Quality, Nature, the name of this record. Justin Timberlake on the vocals. Got a couple quick announcements to make before we get up out of here. Want to let y'all know, of course, so yesterday I mentioned the annual Hard Knock Radio Holiday Bash is coming up. Just to let you know a little correction. It's been pushed back, not December 12th this week. It's going to be next week, December 19th. So remark your calendars. And uh, it's going to be off the hook. It's going to be uh, brought to you by Vibes and Scribes, uh, a hip-hop cabaret. Again, the annual Hard Knock Radio Holiday Bash going down at Velvet, located at 3411 MacArthur Boulevard at 35th Avenue in Oakland's Laurel District. 21 and up with ID. It's going to be hosted by Anita Johnson and Waylon of Hard Knock Radio. And the Hard Knock Radio DJs are going to be throwing it down. And also, also, i got to mention, it's going to be my birthday, December 19th. So... There you go. And I uh, also want to mention uh, PST going down this Thursday night, of course, at Lavende Lounge, 1710 Mission Street. You're going to have the Zoo Crew, the amazing Zoo Crew DJs in effect, so don't sleep on that. And also going down this Friday, December 14th, we got the Bayview Prisoner Subscription Fundraiser. And uh, I'll give more details on that later in the week. KPFA, KPFB, and Berkeley KFC up in Fresno, online at kpfa.org. It's 5 o'clock. Get ready. Flashpoints is coming up next.